Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Four Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, co-host of the show, here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Aaron, you seem you just let out a huge yawn as I was saying that. <laughs> it's an audio-only medium. It was supposed to be a private yawn. I think you could hear that yawn on tape. Sometimes I listen to the the slight tinkle of my iced coffee ice cubes on the track. It seems like you probably needed a coffee today. I did. Uh Evan, who is on the show? Well, wake up for this one, because uh, this week I talked to Mosi Secret. I have followed Mosi's work for years. He, a long time ago, he was on staff at ProPublica and then the New York Times. He was like a Metro reporter, courts reporter, and then somewhat famously the Sin and Vice reporter at the Times for like a year or less. And he's subsequently done long-form work for the Times Magazine, for GQ, and right now he has a new eight-part podcast out called Radical. It's about the shooting of two police officers, one fatally in Atlanta in the year 2000 in a neighborhood called West End. And it's about the man who was convicted of doing that, whose name is Jamil Abdullah Alamin, and what the authorities may have missed or may have ignored in that conviction. So he goes back and unpacks like a ton of history, but also the case itself. It's a great show. I think one or two episodes have dropped already. I recommend uh, checking them out as they come out. And I had a great time talking to Mosi. Well, we're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over there. And now here's Evan with Mosi's Secret. Mosi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, this show that you have out right now, this is kind of the prompt for having you on, although I have, I've wanted to have you on for a long time. Um, it's my favorite kind of journalistic project to talk about because I like these projects where it feels like someone's whole career has kind of like prepared them for this moment, for this project. And when I was listening to the show, it felt like that to me. And I wonder if it feels that way to you. Like, did this feel like, oh, this is, this is a thing I've been sort of like training to do? I would say, yeah, my whole career and my whole 
personal journey is also kind of wrapped up in the show. There yeah. was just, uh, it, it was very weird. It kind of came in this way that felt like it was a tool for me to experience express myself and put myself out there in a way that I haven't before. Can you describe first, we'll talk about what the show's about, but can you tell me a little bit about the moment when it came to you? Cause you actually say in the show, like this story came to me. So how did it come to you? Quite randomly and serendipitously, I was um, introduced to someone who I think, you know, uh, Matt share and um, he and I had been in the same fellowship, but, during different years, and I was interested in podcasting. Uh, I'd been to a dinner party with a bunch of journalists, and they said, you know, this guy, Matt, gave a talk to us, and he might talk to you. So I was introduced to him, and we had a call. I had a project that I was working on that I thought would be good as a series, and so the, Matt pretty quickly said that that wasn't something for them, but he was like, hey, I got this other thing. What do you think about it? And this other thing was this show that they were looking for a host for. And it was a really strange moment when he told me about it because it was like, oh yeah, well I know that guy and it's my hometown and I've done this type of work before. It was quite weird. And as I worked on the project, there were other kind of things like that that happened that just made me feel like this is a special one. Hmm. So so describe what this story is about. It's about a lot of things, but describe sort of like the central events that drive this story. Okay, so kind of broadly the story follows the life and murder conviction of a man named Mam Jamil Abdullah Alameen. He was convicted in 2002 of shooting a couple of sheriff's deputies and killing one of them. This shootout happened after a long career of his in movement politics and setting up a little Muslim community in Atlanta. He really believed in armed self-defense by oppressed groups against police violence and state violence. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, he had, as you can imagine an antagonistic relationship with law enforcement, government officials, that type of thing. Over decades, they surveilled him, watched him. And so the question at the heart of this show is, number one, did he actually do this? Because he's maintained his innocence for a long time. And how did this kind of long history of his and this long antagonism that he had with mostly federal law enforcement, how did it contribute to the events that happened? And we kind of explore that through various avenues. Mm -hmm. This shooting happened in Atlanta, Georgia, which is my hometown. My family is a convert to Islam, as he was, and we were in a part of his community for a little while. People who were involved in the case were people who I knew. A lot of the defense lawyers in the case were people who I knew because my father's a defense lawyer. And so there's just all these ways that I was connected to this material. And you had met him, or you think you say in the show, like you remembered maybe stopping into his masjid at some point? I mean, I definitely met him in the way that like a kid meets an elder in the community. It wasn't like we had, you know, like a sit down or anything, but he would be somebody who, you know, like you would greet, whose hand you would shake. And he's someone who my father had a personal relationship with. There was definitely a moment of like when I was listening to the show, because I'm also from Atlanta, mm -hmm. um, but I'm like a suburban kid. So like when you kind of get into his background, I did at least before you said it, I was like, wait, is this A-Trap Brown? I mean, that's someone that, people who are relatively versed in history, American history yeah, would know, but I didn't know what had become of H-Rap Brown, to be honest with you. Yeah. And that too was, seemed so remarkable to me. So can you describe a little bit the West End community? Like what is this community and what's his role in the community? And were you living like in West End or were you 
in the environs when you grew up? Like how close were you to that community? So, um, H. Rep. Brown, who you mentioned, towering figure in during the civil rights movement, literally was kind of like public enemy number one for certain parts of his his early career. He was arrested for a crime that is in the show and it's kind of complicated, but he was arrested and after that he kind of went quiet. He was in prison for five or six years and after that he moved to Atlanta to set up this little community. The West End neighborhood in Atlanta is pretty close to the historically black colleges and universities there, Morehouse and Spelman. And um, at the time that he was there, it was a mostly black community. It had been, I guess you can call it like a suburban community, though still within city limits before mm-hmm. that, that was mostly white. But by the time he got there, it was mostly black. You know, there were beautiful homes there, but they were run down. There was drug infestation, prostitution. It was a neighborhood that had been neglected. Um, he and the people around him bought up all these houses and they established a community. Um, really, um, as an extension of some of the ideas that he had vouched for during his movement days, which was kind of like, you know, set up your own community, do for yourself, sell your own goods, buy your own goods, that type of thing. And so they established this little community there, African-American Muslims, and he was the leader of it. Mm -hmm. So that was on the west side of Atlanta. I actually grew up on the east side of Atlanta near Grant Park. We, my father, when he converted to Islam, was a part of that community for a little while. So when we would go there, we would just drive over for the Friday services and then come home. And so those would be the occasions that I would have met him. And so we eventually gravitated towards other communities, but we did have like a little chapter there. Hmm. Um, And that was a period when I got to know some of the people who from that community. But then you also talk about in the show, the story comes to you, but then the question is, do you want to open this box? Like, as we've talked about, you're the ideal person in many ways, but also you have a connection to it that there could be consequences for you going in and tell this story. Exactly. You know, like, uh, you know, you hear about these novelists who write books about people who they know and they kind of have these thinly veiled characters and then they write these really mean things and then they like totally blow up their social lives. Like I was like, I never want to be one of those people. I don't even understand why you would do that to people who you care about. Like to me, my writing career does not trump my relationships. And so going into this, I was like, Ooh, this is a little bit too, a little bit too close, you know? Um, so, you know, I had my reservations, very strong reservations in the beginning and I talked with my family about it and they gave me the okay. And I think I was really convinced by some of the documents that I saw, which raised a lot of questions about the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the fact that there were some questions in the case made me be like, oh, okay, well, like maybe he didn't do this. Let me see what's up. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of what convinced me. I'd done an innocent story earlier in my career. It's like one of the the best stories that I've that I've done, and I'm something I was really proud of. And I was, you know, like really able to see the impact of my work, very clear way. You know, a guy got out of prison. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe this is that again on a bigger scale, dealing with the FBI and this historical figure and, you know, like the the way that we're drawn to stories, to big stories, I was like, okay, maybe this is my big story. Yeah. Well, let's, I want to go back to that, um, that exoneration story that you did previously. Indie Week? Was that the... Indie Week, yeah. Indie Week. Alt-Weekly paper in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. So first tell me, 
go back a little bit and tell me how you got that gig. Like, how did that come about? I'm going to start from the very beginning, and if it's too much, you can edit it out. We love the beginning. So um, when I first graduated college, I moved to New York, and I said, I'm going to be a writer. That was very foolish. Uh, I ended up, like, cater waiting tables, and I started looking for ways to get out of the city and figure out how to kind of, like, restart or actually just start my Mm. career. And so I applied for two fellowships. One was a daily journalism fellowship at Pointer. And one was an alt-weekly fellowship that was run by what was then the New Times Company. Village Voice Media became later. Um, And I got both of them. And it was this moment where I... It was actually... It wasn't even a big fork in the road because I always knew. But it was just clear to me that I was drawn to long-form storytelling. So I got that fellowship. I went to a little paper... Or not a little paper, but the alt-weekly in Houston, the Houston Press... And that was not the best experience for like personal reasons. They just, whatever, they were assholes to me. (laughs) Um, uh, But it was a really positive experience in one way because I was introduced to an alum of that paper who was living in North Carolina. Uh. So I moved to this little North Carolina job and this alum of that paper was a great investigative reporter. This guy's name was Bob Bertman. He had a house out in the woods. He wasn't really writing anymore. He was like a radio DJ on the side and on like a low wattage FM radio. And he just like took me under his wing. And when I got there, I'd been there. I don't know how long I'd been there, but he got me a little two inch story out of the daily paper about this guy's innocence claims, a guy named Eric Daniels. Mm-hmm. And he said, the innocence story, it's like one of the kind of foundational kind of stories of investigative reporting. We have this. This guy says he's innocent. The Innocence Project is looking into it. He's had these hearings. Go check it out. So that was how I got that story. And he essentially kind of like showed me how to do it. So I went and I met with the the guy's appellate lawyer. It was at the appellate stage. He was doing like um, habeas relief petitions. And uh, he had all these, you know, um, appellate motions that he was filing. But he didn't really have time or maybe even money to hire an investigator. Mm. But they had theories for what happened. The person who had been convicted was a teenager, and his mom had kind of hit the streets after his conviction and kind of pieced together what she thought happened. So I met with his mom, and a lot of this stuff sounded plausible. So I kind of hit the streets and was kind of chasing down these leads that she had given me, finding these kind of like street dudes who were like, yeah, this guy didn't do it. They knew what happened, and they kind of gave me a, an account that made sense and we published it. Yeah. I was rereading it. And, uh, when the couple of the guys say, basically, I know who did it. I'm not going to tell you who did it, but I, I can tell you he didn't do it. That 14 year old kid did not do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. And like those encounters were quite memorable because some of those guys were scary. Like I remember there was this one guy named Cam Lewis who was kind of the toughest guy in this, public housing development he had this kind of like super thick neck and like football player build and was known as a shooter who had shot and perhaps taken lives and so he was one of the people who was alleged to have been involved in this shooting that this other little kid was convicted of and so I was like okay the only way that I really want to talk to these guys is I knew that they would be back and forth to the courthouse 
I knew that they would have court dates because people like that, they just get picked up on stuff. And so I was just continually checking the court system and he had a court date. Hmm. And so by the time I got to him, he was in a wheelchair from having been shot and wounded pretty severely. And we were like in the hallway in the courthouse. And I was like, I was, I was very, very nervous talking to him. And it was just the, I guess it was the feeling of knowing what he meant for the story, not really wanting to put my foot in my mouth with this guy whose language I didn't really talk. And I just approached him and I had this, you know, it was like, I had this big, I don't know why I brought it with me, but I had a big three ring binder of all my documents. Here's my evidence. And uh, I was just like, yeah, you know, I'm looking into this case involving, you know, this kid named Eric Daniels who's in prison. I think he didn't do it. I think you might know. What do you think? And then I proceeded to like drop my binder and like documents fall over the floor. But as I was picking them up, he said something like, yeah, he didn't do it. And I'll tell you about it. And so I met him at his house. He was living like in a little room like this in the back of his mother's house because he was in a wheelchair. And we had this great talk. And uh, yeah, he was one of the key sources for that story. How did that make you feel about your work at the time? Because I could see it going either like, oh, this is what happens. You do a story, a guy gets out of prison, like that's how it works. Or this is once in a lifetime, like I'll never, this will never happen to me again. Yeah, I thought the first way. (laughs) Um, I had this sense of the power of what we do. And in fact, the story came out and then the, there was a court hearing a year later, and it was Judge Orlando Hudson who was the judge, and he called me in his chambers before the hearing, and he had the story with him, and he said something to the effect of, I just want to let you know that you have shined a light on this, and part of the reason why this is happening today is because of this story. Holy shit. It, it was incredible. And he said, I just want to thank you for the work that you've done. Um, I don't know if he told me or if he just intimated that he was going to let Eric out. So it was a huge affirmation of the work that I'd done. And so during that hearing, he affirmed the habeas petition on all counts and he let him out that day, which they'd never do. And so it just, it was for me like, okay, this is what ambitious journalism is capable of. And that's what I believed going forward. Now, I actually still believe that, but it spoiled me in the sense that it was much harder for me in bigger journalism institutions to get assigned the big stories, Mm. to get assigned the the ambitious stories. And so I became someone, or at least this is how I felt, like I'm capable of doing more than I'm being allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And that was very frustrating for me during various points of my career. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. 
But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I feel like you choose your stories very carefully, as far as I can tell. And I'm wondering how much, like, what is for you driving what stories you choose to tell? I guess when I'm kind of navigating what I want to do, you know, a lot of it is based on ways in which I want to grow as a writer and, you know, as a person. With the, like, my first magazine story was a, Profile of some boys in Brownsville. Mm -hmm. And all I wanted to do with that story was be a magazine writer. Like that was my first national magazine story. And that's, I was just like, at all costs, I will be a magazine writer, (laughs) you know? And um, like I definitely brought my best to the story, but that was where I was at at that point in my career. I had come from alt weeklies. I knew how to write long form, but I hadn't had this platform yet. And so that's what I was thinking. And after that story came out, I got some reader mail, which really made me think about what I had done. So the story was about these young black boys in Brownsville. You know, for people who are listening outside of New York, it's a super, can be a super dangerous and tough area. And I hung out with these teenage guys, and it was just kind of about the rhythms of their life, Mm -hmm. how they moved around their geographic space. And it went a long way to bring some dignity and humanity to some folks who just are kind of like ignored by the media. However, it still was this story about young black men who were fucking up. And so after the story came out, I got some mail and the extent of it was like, this is a beautiful story, but why? Why did you tell this? Did it need to be told? And I actually, I was like, you're right. Why did I, why did I tell the, the reason that I told that story is because I wanted to tell a magazine story and I wanted to do the best. I wanted to bring my best to it, but it was, I still had to question why I told the story. It made me realize that it isn't just the news. I have a choice about what I put out there. It is actually in many ways I can choose. Mm-hmm. And so that was a real moment of growth for me. And my next magazine story was kind of like the flip opposite of that story. It was about these young black men who were like excellent in every way. In the late 60s, long after Brown versus Board of Education desegregated public schools, there were still these private schools, elite private schools that remained all white. 
And um, there was a wealthy heiress, an heir to the R.J. Reynolds tobacco fortune, who decided that these schools should be desegregated because the people who went to these elite schools would be the future leaders of the South and they should be exposed to black children, what we would now call diversity, and they shouldn't be able to, to escape desegregation. And so she financed and set up an organization that went around the South and found the most talented black children, mostly black children, but eventually some Latino children and some um, native children to go to these schools. And I wrote a narrative about one part of this effort at one school in Virginia called the Virginia Episcopal School. I followed, I think, the first five or six students to go to that school. Mm -hmm. And so it became a way that I could like grow as a writer and, and grow into being able, having some say over what stories I tell. That was what that leap was for me. Going back to the show, uh, Radical. So when you said, okay, I'm going to go into, there's questions that have not been answered that I want to go in and, and answer. How did you envision the show? Because there's like this true crime way to do it where like you really like revel in the details of the crime and then there's like a straightforward exoneration story that's like, here's the evidence that hasn't been un unearthed. And it feels like you were looking to do something different, but did you kind of conceive what that was going to be when you started reporting it? I didn't know what it was going to be when I started the story. I should also say that I wasn't reporting this story alone. Right. So when, you know, as I described, Matt was looking for a host and reporter for this show, there was already a producer who had done a significant amount of reporting on the show, who had actually conceived of the project, a guy named Johnny Kaufman, who had done, you know, an incredible amount of document work, court searches, public records requests, state and federal, and got a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he's the one who shared those documents with me that made me think that there was something, that there were questions to be answered. And so when we were thinking about what the show should be, it was like, it was just like a lot of conversations about what do we do with this material? What do we do with the holes in the material? Johnny and I both from the beginning did not want to do a true crime show. It's just like not my thing. Um, it is not Johnny's thing. And so we knew that. We knew that we had a lot of history to deal with in the show that we wanted to make fresh and interesting. Mm -hmm. We knew that because there was this religious component, there were ideas that we could play with, philosophical and metaphysical ideas that we could play with that were connected to the material. Mm -hmm. And so really it just became a series of conversations. You know, like we, I would go down to Atlanta every once in a while and we would just sit for a few hours brainstorming structures. And it just devolved that way, um, you know, with audio, it also has to do with what tape you have. And so who's willing to talk? And that was a big part of it. Did people in the community not want to talk about it for the most part? That is true. It was very difficult to find people to talk. I mean, Imam Jamil Alameen was, uh, he was the Imam. He was the leader. And he was still revered by most people there. And there was this anti-establishment sentiment among his followers. So there was really no inclination to believe for many people that just because he was arrested or just because he was convicted that he had done it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, people didn't want to go rooting around in that. And the other thing is that 
that there are law enforcement officers involved. Those were the victims. People also know the consequences of knowing something about a cop who was killed. I mean, that will get you into some trouble. So people who might have known something about what went down that night, they don't want to get involved. Like people want to stay as far away from that as possible. They try to um to execute a ma'am Jamil. So, you know, yeah. like nobody wants to get close to that. Yeah. And then as you would probably expect, then you got people on the, the other side, the prosecution of the cops who are sort of like, it's over. Why should I even talk about this anymore? Like I'm tired of talking about it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there were some pretty serious door knocking situations. The one in particular in this show, door stepping, we call it, I guess, but I don't know. Does anyone use that phrase anymore? Are the only journalists use that? I heard, I hear door knocking. I've only heard reporters call it door stepping. Um, I, I usually say door knocking too, but anyway, there, there are some like a little bit harrowing, uh, one incident and that made me wonder, and you mentioned earlier, kind of like being nervous when you were interviewing that guy um where did you kind of develop your your abilities around like showing up at someone's door so that job that i was telling you about at the houston press that's where i did what i guess we can call my first investigative story at um texas southern university which is the historically black college there a student had gotten killed on campus and there were some questions as to as to whether campus officials had secured the campus well enough. And so I was doing some reporting around that, along with some really like intrepid students who had given me some documents that kind of pointed to some lapses from the university. I think that was probably my first door knock. And I was probably, let's just say early 20s. And um, yeah, it was not something that I was like super keen to do at all. And so... Um, an editor told me, I'm like conflating my memories here, but someone said, you know, just pretend you're wearing a cape and just go, just like pretend that you can do it. And that's basically what I did in the beginning. I just pretended that I could do it. And then after that, it becomes, it's just like practice. You just kind of get used to it. You get used to the fact that anything could happen. You get used to the fact that some people are going to get pissed. Some people are going to actually let their guard down and talk to you. There are so many surprises that happen when you're dealing with human beings. Some people will tell you shit. You would think that they would never tell you. They should never tell you, but they tell you. And you don't really know this until you go do it. Mm -hmm. And um, once you had that experience enough times, you're like, I'm, all right, I'm just going to go do it. And that has been, that's how it went for me. And then after a while, I learned that I was actually good at it, that people were talking to me because of me. And there was something that was happening there. I don't even know what it was, but it was, something was happening. And so then it was like one of the tools that I brought as a journalist. Uh huh. I was trying to goad you to talk about being the sin advice reporter. At oh the New York yeah, Times, yeah, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. That felt like an era where you were you were going into some strange situations. Yeah. Oh, can I? I'll just tell. <laughs> that is true. That reminds me. I will. I will. I will allow myself to compliment myself. Um, in Houston, this is kind of like a prelude to the sin advice reporting thing. There's a lot of prostitution in Houston, and I was going to do something some type of story about a pimp essentially because I was like in my twenties and I thought that'd be interesting. And I met this guy at court and he was sitting in the gallery and I sat next to him and I was trying to convince him to do this story. He said, no, of course. And I just kind of like kept talking to him and kept talking to him. And he said something like, Oh, you're a smooth talking college boy or something like that. Something to the effect of, I kind of want to talk to you, but I know I shouldn't talk to you. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like there's some, there's some type of, 
suasion that I have here. <laughs> and so the Senate advice beat kind of became a lot of that. It was like, how do we get people who are in these kind of like New York City underbelly scenes and situations to tell these stories that they have no business telling? And the first story was the biggest story. After that, it became harder and harder. But the first story was I met this guy who ran this kind of like speakeasy brothel in the Manhattan Theater District. <laughs> Basically, he just kind of like told me about the business and he brought me in there with a photographer. And uh, it's kind of what you imagine, like all of these midtown guys after work and they're like, business casual in this like super slimy situation. And uh, like there were curtains in various places and people were doing things. And uh, it was a New York scene, something that you would like see in some fiction show, but it was actually quite real. Um, and that was kind of talking to the right people and, and convincing them. I don't know if it was convincing them. Sometimes people just want to share. People want to share what they're yeah, doing. Show it off. Show it off. And so, um, yeah, that was a big occasion where that happened. And it, it got me a lot of attention because people didn't believe that a story like that would ever be in the New York Times. But, yeah. Uh, it was like a little bit of a moment for me. Then there were all these stories about you. Then there were all these stories about How me. How did you get yeah. that job? Yeah. It's a family-friendly paper. Yeah, exactly. There's even some little criticism. Like, how did they? How did he get this story? Like, what's the deal with the lawyer? I yeah. Know the criticism. And of, after that, I kept getting these emails and phone calls from people who were asking for the location of the thing, but they were very clearly police officers because the story I think had embarrassed the NYPD. <laughs> I mean, what's worse, like clients calling you up or, or cops calling you up yeah. like, Hey, can you give me the, yeah. what's the address? <laughs> but I mean, I imagine that, uh, you get used to sort of interacting with people, buttonholing people, making sure that you can kind of like catch somebody and like, get information out of them without getting pushed aside. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely a part of it because they, you know, they had every reason not to talk. So it was finding their attraction to the story, finding the reasons that they would want to talk. Um, as I said, it became harder and harder because not only are you doing that, but you're also trying to do it in a way that beats the standards of the New York times in terms of like having people on the record and sourcing and that type of thing. And, uh, it got harder and harder. Um, you know, you're, I was also dealing with people who were not necessarily trustworthy. Like I remember one guy, I was trying to get taken into like a, a gambling den in Harlem. And this guy was just like giving me the total runaround, you know, like, like he wanted me to give him some money. And we have this policy of like, oh, you know, I can, I can get you a meal, man, but I can't give you any money. So he took me to this restaurant that his friend was running. And I got him like a little meal or something. And the check came back like $150 more than, uh, than the bill should be. So it was just like I was dealing with a lot of unsavory people. And at some point I was just kind of like, why am I doing this? You know, like I definitely started as a journalist hoping to kind of change the world for the better. And that felt a little tabloidy. And so after a while, I just kind of let it peter out. Mm -hmm. And the the complexity of the story that you're dealing with in the show, I was very intrigued by like how you went about tackling it because there's a, I mean, there's somebody else who confesses to the murder and like in a lot of stories, you'd be like, 
this story is over. No one confesses to a murder that they didn't do. That would be sort of like the conventional wisdom. And I wondered how you, in telling the story and in reporting the story, kind of grappled with the idea that it's not that simple. Well, I mean, a lot of it comes down to dealing with what you have in front of you. Um, the First of all, confessions, despite the fact that they're confessions, I mean, as you know, there are a lot of problems with them with people who make false confessions. For sure, yeah. Central Park Five being the most famous case, probably. And so there is always like a little bit of, you want to vet what people are saying. We should say, I mean, again, not to spoil too much, but like, this is an unprompted confession. Like someone else just says, hey, it wasn't him, it was exactly. me. There not someone no police, who's like there's no under pressure coercion. to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, 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 exactly. But still, I guess you just want to check it out. You just kind of want to do your due diligence. You know, like I don't want to say too much because it's a big turning point in the show. But there were some questions about this confession. And in fact, I can say these questions existed before we even got to the show. Like there's people in the community knew about these confessions. Law enforcement knew about these confessions at the time of the trial. The defense team and investigators knew about these confessions. So it wasn't as if we heard them and no one else had heard them. Right, right. We were the first person to record them for dissemination to the public. But this guy was a known figure in the universe of this case. Mm -hmm. And there were questions. And so... We went into that with kind of some of the same questions that most people had and wanted to get as close to the truth as we could. Yeah, I mean, it kind of gets back to that question of, are you bending the story to what you want it to be or letting it be what it is? Like, if you want it to be an exoneration story, then, like, you're not asking some questions. But it seems like you were already in a mode of, like, I don't really know if this is an exoneration story or not. Yeah, I was definitely in that mode. I mean, there were times when I was looking through all the documents we had when I was like, whoa, this guy is definitely innocent. And there were other times where I was like, oh, yeah, he definitely did it. Um, you know, you kind of go into this thing knowing that it's possible that you won't get there. You know, like that's in fact what happens most of the time. You don't figure out what happened that night. There are all these kind of podcasts or documentaries or, or whatever that have these unsatisfying endings because people are not able to get that close. So we knew that that was a possibility. And so we're all the time kind of thinking very fluidly as we get things of what this should be. And we would just kind of come back and do a new outline and come back and do a new outline. And that's how it came together. And I should also say that... Uh, you know, editors also played a part in this. You know, like we, the way that we kind of structured our work is Johnny would kind of block out the episode structurally, where the tape should go, things like that. And he would leave blocks of chunk for me to write over in my voice. Mm -hmm. We would then, you know, write out an episode and then we would have a read through and then editors would be like, that's working, that's not working, that's not working. And there would be also some movement of things between episodes. And so, yeah, it was coming together like that until the very last episode. Mm -hmm. And there's a, as there is, you know, like in many stories that involve the civil rights movement, there's this COINTELPRO aspect of it. So the FBI is investigating H. Rap Brown when he's H. Rap Brown. And then the question is, do they keep investigating him and what are they doing? And they... They may or may not have been involved in kind of trying to take him down various ways over the years. And 
that like COINTELPRO has now become such a, it's like every conspiracy theorist says COINTELPRO. Like if they say the craziest conspiracy theory and you're like, that's ridiculous. They're like, have you ever heard of COINTELPRO? Like that's like a common thing. But then when you actually hear about the shit they were doing, you're like, well, actually anything is possible. It's true. It's, it's true. Um, and you know, for me, it's that same type of thing. You hear about COINTELPRO in this general sense. But when you get into the details of what they were doing, you can't believe it. You cannot believe it. Like the machinations that they were doing to take people down, it was like, it was sinister. Yeah. So then the question becomes, people are all, like in our minds, that was the past, this is now. But who's to say there's not a continuation of those types of tactics? Well, we know that when it comes to mosque infiltration and that sort of thing, that they were continued. Right. And that also plays into the story as well, because then 9-11 happens right after the murders. Yeah. The FBI's hands were not clean in this. And there's another aspect that it felt like really touched on reporting you'd done in the past, and it comes up in the show, the past reporting that you did for ProPublica on forensics, because the other aspect is they put this guy on trial, Alameen, and they have like a ballistics expert who says like, this is the gun, and it's the specific gun that we found is the specific gun that was used, and... You had had past experience looking at forensic evidence for ProPublica. So describe a little bit what that reporting was like. Yeah, so there is part of the evidence that was used to convict Jamil Alamine was ballistics evidence. And there was someone, an expert, who testified that the bullets that were recovered from the victim's bodies and the bullets that were found out of the scene were fired from a particular weapon that was recovered from where... Jamil Alameen was apprehended. But a lot of this stuff does not hold up to scientific scrutiny. In, I want to say like 2010, there was a big report by the National Academy of Sciences kind of surveying the various forensic sciences, trying to establish to what extent these things had any rigor. Mm -hmm. So anyway, with and I had worked on a series at ProPublica with um, AC Thompson and some other really good reporters kind of building on this report. And uh, one of the things that we learned is that ballistics evidence is, there's a lot of crap there, you know, like the idea that there is, that a gun leaves like fingerprint markings on the bullet that it fires. It's just not true. But that idea is so ingrained in like the American mind that prosecutors still put it before juries and it's allowed as evidence. And so that gets into a trial and people believe it, especially when you have a victim who's a police officer and there's, and there's that built in the way that people will believe a cop over someone who's been accused of a crime. So you put those two things together and it's a very difficult evidentiary hurdle to jump. Mm -hmm. Again, it, it just feels like a situation where they, they brought this story to you and then you hit this point in the story where there's like a ballistics situation and you're kind of like, yeah, I've been there I before. I used to do that. I, I yeah, that. it was, it was, that was a funny one. <laughs> and I feel like it's fair to say like you do come to a conclusion in the story. We can say I do come to a conclusion. But you also seem to say I'm coming to a conclusion, but that's not actually exactly what this story is about. Can you describe as best you can here what you think that deeper question is in the story? Yeah. So Jamil Alamine, formerly known as H. Rep. Brown, is the embodiment 
of an idea, an idea that was quite prevalent in the Black Power movement, that it's time for oppressed groups to fight back. It's time for oppressed groups to shoot back because we have suffered too much. And he believed that because violence was such a part of the fabric of the United States. It was the language of the United States. The only way to communicate and exist was to use that language. And he had this really famous phrase that he's probably most known for, where he said, violence is as American as cherry pie. And so the show is as much about the murder trial or the murder investigation as it is about this idea and how well it holds up over time, what it meant in his life and what it means for us today, whether there are lessons for these groups that are still under fire and how do we begin to move away from this extremely violent society that we have? And what does it mean for your life? Like when you looked this closely at this story, did you feel like it changed the way you thought about that question? It changed my approach to storytelling. I've done a lot of criminal justice reporting in my career. And I guess there is this sense that maybe based on, you know, like the early work that I've done, like the innocent story that I did, that there is a system to be fixed. And that, you know, shining a light on these problems can help us fix these problems. But I, 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 this story made me call on parts of myself that are not journalistic. Hmm. Because I don't really think that's the way we're going to get out of this at this point in my life. I think that it takes a more radical reimagining of who we are as human beings, the ways in which we're connected and what we owe to each other. And that's not a reporting thing. That's like a who are you kind of thing. And so in the end, that's what I thought I had to bring to it. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to Mosi Secret for coming on. His podcast is called Radical. You can get it, you know what they say, everywhere you get your podcasts. Go listen to it now. It's fantastic. The show this week was edited by Susan Peterson. Our show notes were by Megan Valley. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.